Women Empowerment and How to Avoid These Two Common Mistakes with Jamie Hall, Episode 301. Are you ready to make your law firm a profit-generating machine that will free up your time and skyrocket your impact? With more than two decades of business growth experience and having proven that you can be successful while prioritizing your family and your impact, Introducing the Profit with Law podcast. I am your host, the creator of the firm differentiator 10x effect, Moshe Amsel. Well, hello and welcome to another amazing guest interview here on the Profit with Law podcast. I'm your host, Moshe Amsel, and I have a treat for you today. If you think that running a law firm is difficult, that there's tough challenges, uh, and tough decisions to make, you're absolutely right. There definitely are. And the problem is, is that many law firm owners don't know how to make those decisions and they need help. Help that maybe somebody like I as a coach can provide, or maybe you actually need somebody hands-on in your business helping you make those decisions. And that's why I'm excited to have our guest on today's podcast. Our guest today is Jamie Hall. Jamie is the founder, CEO of Legal Back Office. Legal Back Office is a company that supports law firms in their growth and helps them with making the tough decisions that need to be made to become a profitable and highly successful business that can grow and expand exactly the way that the firm owner wants it to. Jamie has been in the legal industry for over 10 years. She started by leading a 100 plus person office, a person back office for a global litigation firm as the CEO. She helped grow this firm from a 22-state presence to over 40 states and the UK in six years, as well as reduced turnover and improved financial performance. Sounds like a dream. Legal Back Office launched in 2018 because of a need in the industry to help smaller firms become more successful. Legal Back Office is passionate about helping attorneys build a successful business Legal Back Office powers the business of law by offering strategic planning and consulting, as well as outsourced accounting, marketing, and HR services to small and mid-sized law firms across the U.S. Jamie's team is now 10 people strong across the U.S., serving law firms in nine states. She also is a lot of fun, and you can count on her to be available for a smile and a hug. She's here with me today to do exactly that, and hopefully also impart some great wisdom for us. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really, it's an honor. It really is. And we appreciate you being here. Jamie, I like to start off with very simple, you know, um, easy to answer question right at the beginning. People are like, okay, who is this person? They want to know a little <laughs> bit more about you. And I gave you the intro, the canned intro, but yeah. give us a little bit of, of your story and why people should pay attention to the conversation we're going to have today. Um, you know, maybe many adults would say this, but where I'm at today is not where I thought I would be, you know, 20 years ago in terms of my career. Um, but the irony to me is my mom actually was a legal assistant and a paralegal her entire career. And so I've been around law firms, but never in a million years that I think I would actually be not just in this industry, but as deep in this industry as I am not being a lawyer myself. So, um, but it's been really fascinating to me being, you know, my career trajectory has been pretty fast uh, and at a young age. And I think one of the things I got really passionate about once I was in the legal industry is really trying to 
help lawyers be the best version of themselves as a lawyer, but also as a human, as a person. And so I'm pretty passionate about helping this industry as much as I possibly can from a legal back office perspective. But I'm also really passionate about helping women in law. Um, we do several things to try to perpetuate, you know, um, empowering women in this industry as it has, you know, kind of been a tough industry uh, for us. So I think those are a couple of things I'm passionate about is I really just love helping lawyers be successful. Their success is my success in propping up, you know, women, especially in this industry. So I get to do those things through what I do every day. And that's incredibly beautiful. That's awesome. I love that. And um, not exactly the direction that I thought I was going to take in this conversation, but you opened the door. So I want to explore this for a moment. Yeah. What do you think is holding women back from really being the, the power force and powerhouse that they can be in the legal industry? What, what's the problem um, there? Is it the society of the industry or is it the women themselves really not owning the, the true role that they that they play? Well, you know, statistically speaking, there just aren't there. There are an equal number of female lawyers as there are male lawyers. But how many females are there actually in partnership and in equity partnership roles at bigger firms? And I can't tell you the numbers. I think it's like 20 percent of all equity partners are females. Well, how, why is that? Right. Why is it that 50 percent of all lawyers ish? are women, but there's such a smaller amount that are in those leadership roles. And so more subjectively, my what I've seen in the small firm world actually, is women really feeling like they couldn't get the same opportunities as men at bigger firms. And that was for a number of reasons. I don't think it's just gender specific. I'll give you one example though, because I think it's really pertinent um, and us as leaders that we need to pay attention to it as well. So let's say a partner meeting is on a Friday and uh, uh, a, a female lawyer, you know, that is supposed to be at the meeting has a sick kid. I've seen this happen time and time again. Well, female lawyer stays home with the sick kid and the partner meeting goes on. Um, a male partner, right, that's in that same meeting, the meeting gets rescheduled if they can't be there, right? And I've seen those things happen consistently. So sometimes it's like role differences in our own households too, but a lot of that, I think the treatment, um, actually a female lawyer used the PTSD term to me one time, professional traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. And how it's kind of a real thing, right? Like people get burned out at these big firms. There's not the flexibility. They're trying to wear a lot of hats. And there's been a mass exodus of, I think, women out of bigger firms. And there's a lot of small firms being run by women, you know, because they're trying to get away from where right. they were at and what they were doing before. Um, and it's it's actually, it's a happy day for them to go into entrepreneurship, but it's also sad that we've got these firm cultures. And it's not just big firms. You know, I mean, there's some mid-sized and small firms that have these issues too. And so I, I think that women are just getting their voice again. You know, I mean, we're just, my experience also is we're not always heard the same way. So, right. you know, a woman is upset or frustrated or angry about something. And my expression of that is maybe I tear up if I'm really angry, but I get really quiet because I mm -hmm. want to process something mm -hmm. versus I'm in the same room with a male attorney who gets angry and yells and he's looked at as being powerful and strong. And I'm looked at as being weak, right? right. Even though it's the same 
the different expression of the same reaction is just expressed differently. Exactly. And I will take care of the issue an hour later or two hours later or the next day versus yelling in the moment. And I love sharing that example because I do think a lot of women have experienced that in our industry over time. And so it's led us to be more timid, frankly. Yeah. And and that's, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to explore because like, for example, the example that you gave with the rescheduling of the meeting, you know, is that happening because the rest of the partners don't want to have the meeting without that male partner? Or is it happening because the male partner says, Hey, I'm not going to be able to make this meeting. Can we reschedule it? Whereas the female partner says, Hey, I'm not gonna be able to make this meeting and doesn't push for that reschedule. Right. And I'm not, I don't want to make it the woman's fault. That's not the point of the question. The question is, um, are women inherently not as strong about their role and therefore in rec- make in, in pushing for what's fair for them in the moment? I will, I will tell you, there's a, a really interesting study, actually a couple of studies out of Washington university here in St. Louis. Um, one of my professors, her name's Hillary Anger Elfenbein. She's brilliant. And she's done a lot of gender studies. And one of the um, outcomes of one of the research projects she's did did is that women are more likely to advocate for others than for themselves. So if it's a if it's a pay issue, right? If there's disparate pay, they're gonna go to their boss or their boss's boss to advocate for their people getting an increase or a raise that's commensurate with their experience, but not for themselves. So I think you're right. To a certain extent, that voice is silenced, but it's silenced based on, you know decades of experience, right? So I will give a huge props and kudos to, I think there's been a lot more support for women lawyers and support for women in the industry in general the last few years. There's some really great Facebook groups where there's a lot of female collaboration in this industry going on. We've started Beyond 3L. I think there's there's a lot more happening to try to empower women today than there was even two, three years ago. Yeah. And and I I think that that's great. And I think that's really important, but we shouldn't be empowering women by making them have to be with other women to make that happen. Right. In other words, it should be a collaborative effort with the entire industry. There should, I, I, you know, like I have always been in this position, nothing to do with, with the legal industry, but, but um, I went through a divorce and in the process, uh, you know, I was treated as the typical male in, you know, in the way society perceives it. And I was really like the mom to my kids. Like I, you know, my ex-wife was, she was not stepping up to the plate and doing what she should be doing. And uh, she had the kids most of the time because I was the primary breadwinner, but then she never took them to the doctor. She never, you know, like there was all that stuff happening and I was the person doing all that. And in school, she never went to school functions, but they wouldn't communicate with me and say, Hey, we're having this thing for, for your kid because the assumption was the mother's going to come. Right. And it's like, it I always felt like I was second, um, second on, on deck you know, in, in everyone's eyes, as far as parenting my children. Um, and when I, when I came into this industry and I tried to get into a Facebook group that was there to support lawyers, and I was told, no, you can't come in because you're not a female. I said, well, you're kind of doing the exact thing that, that got us here, 
right? Like if you create an enclave of female only and exclude the men, you're not solving the problem. You're empowering women, but you're empowering them amongst women. And we need to empower women in the world. We need to empower, we need to also educate the men on the problems that the women are having and how it can be fixed. So it's almost like we need to have this collaboration that comes up where everybody is in it for the long run, understanding that we need women in the industry. We need men in the industry. We need everyone to have an equal footing and we need to figure out how to make that happen. Um, and so I, I almost feel like we need to figure out a way to make that happen without creating the exact opposite effect. I totally agree with you. And I, I give you actually like mad props for saying, hey, you know, men need to be a part of this conversation and a part of empowering women and women should be empowering men. Like we should all be in this together. Um, I would say that I think my my experience in a lot of women's in this industry is your thinking process is unique. It's a little different. You don't find a lot of male lawyers that are saying, you know, we want to be a part of this conversation and really understand, you know. So I think that's huge that you're saying that. And I totally relate to what you're saying. My ex-husband was also um, a primary person caring for our children most of our marriage. Um, I happened to have the job that took me out of the home home for a lot of hours. And I had the same problem as you, but from a differing viewpoint where the school kept calling me and I couldn't take those calls. He was supposed to be getting them. He was the primary and it was communicated that he was the primary, but I still kept getting them. And right. so similar to you where I, it's like he was wanting the calls. I'm wanting to him to have the calls because I'm too overwhelmed with life to manage all of it. He'll tell me what I need to know and when and where I need to be. Um, but same problem, different lens, right? Right. And I like these discussions because it does offer different lenses to, to the to the same issues. So I mean, I totally agree with you that the start the second we start to exclude, then we're pendulum is swinging the other direction and we're exacerbating a problem, but from an opposite viewpoint. Right. The last thing we want to have is 15 years from now having a conversation about how men need to be more, need to have more rights and need to, you know, like, it's just in the equal rights movement that's happening in the United States, there's almost the effect of people who are white being discriminated against because they're not a minority. Because there's so many things that are being created for minorities to give them a leg up that... Like, for example, an employer is so incentivized to hire somebody who is a minority that they may look overlook a perfectly qualified candidate who is not a minority in order to check a box that they hired a minority. Right. Right. And I don't want I, I don't want the hate mail to come because I'm not <laughs> I'm not minimizing the fact that there's still a discrepancy and there needs to be these things in place. But it's almost like some of the solutions that we create to fix the problem create new problems where we're inherently doing the same thing to the other side. And uh, we, we need to really be aware of that as, as, we, as we approach this. But I absolutely think that women should be a 50% ex uh, um, um, existence at the partner level. Uh, and, and unfortunately, I, it's not going to get solved on this podcast. Um, awareness is important, but we need to have the awareness conversation in a place where men are participating in it. Um, and 
I have a great platform here on the podcast and also our Law Firm Growth Summit. Um, and maybe uh, offline, we can talk about ways that I can help uh, with this effort uh, because I want to be involved. And I want to, even at our last Law Firm Growth Summit, we had three keynote speakers, Mike Michalowicz, the author of Profit First and many other business books, um, David Nagel, who's very well known in the legal industry. He's a, uh, a, 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 a international coach, very well respected, has a lot of great information to share. And Kevin Harrington, who was one of the original sharks on Shark Tank. And then we're running our ads and I'm getting, I'm getting messages from people like, what is going on here? Why do you have three white men as your keynote speakers? Where are the women? Where are the, where's the, where are the, where's the African-American people? Where like there's, you had, there's so much out there. And I, the, my response was, I, I looked for people. I even went and I found like I was, um, I, I messaged privately on LinkedIn, there were certain females who are out there and well, you know, well-known and, and, and are after these things, there's, there's an entire, um, like, uh, legal consortium of, of, uh, attorneys in like fortune 500 companies that make up the board of this exit, this, this entity. And I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head. That's specifically about, um, equal rights and, and, you know, in, in the law firm. And I messaged every single one of them privately asking them to come and be a keynote speaker. And I got no responses. So it's almost like, yeah, we're there to, to put our name on a, on a board and say, say we're there. But the reality is, is that they're not accessible. They're not, it, you know, they're, they're not available to, to be on that platform um, and it further perpetuates the problem. So even somebody like me who wants to help doesn't necessarily have the the players to put to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that I'm pretty surprised because there are a lot of really dynamic powerhouse women speakers in our industry. I mean, I go to Crisp, I go to ABA. I mean, I'm I'm at all the things. Um, and there are some really powerful, incredible female speakers. I mean, I don't know, I don't know what the price tag is on a, on a shark tank, Kevin, um, but I've seen Damon John speak before and he's absolutely incredible. And so, you know, I'm, it surprises me a little bit just because there are so many dynamic women in this industry, but you have to remember too, that we got to where we are from somewhere. Right. And a lot of times I think, women are empowering women because men aren't and haven't been empowering women and, and behaviors and you, what you're craving, right. To, to be supported by other women, it comes out of some sort of trauma, right. That you've already experienced. I'm using a strong word like trauma, right. right. But for some people that for some people, it has been traumatic, their experience with men in business in general and men in the industry. So trying to women and trying to empower other women, I think that has been the first step. And frankly, women can be kind of catty. I mean, I almost use a different word, but I'll keep your podcast PC. <laughs> um, we can be, right? Like women historically have not been good at supporting other women. I mean, let's just call ourselves out for a second. Like, 
cattiness, you know, just mean girl sort of behaviors. And so I think it's actually very positive that we're at, we're at a place in our society that at least I haven't seen where women truly are supporting other women. Sure, there's exceptions to the rule, but more globally, I think we're seeing more of this. And that was, that's the first step. The next step is, you know, men actually wanting to be a part of the conversation and being willing to listen and, and vice versa. And so I applaud you for your perspective and, and how you're thinking. I would encourage you, though, in the future, I, I do think there's a lot of women. And just just ask me. I've got like a whole grouping of women. If you're looking for women speakers that are amazing, I'm always happy to give recommendations. Um, but we probably do shy away a little bit. Maybe there's like a comfort level of being together. I don't know. But it has been interesting to me to actually see a lot of our clients are being run by women, which has been fascinating. And I'm sure they're, we're attracted to each other because I'm a women-owned business too. Um, but I've seen our female clients wanting to leave a better life, leave behind a bad existence in the law firm world to create something better, right? Create something different and new. Um, and it has been fascinating to just watch that sort of dynamic play out. Yeah, and the truth is, the truth is, is that most of my coaching clients are female as well, and um, I always thought that it was because of who I attract, because of my messaging and the way that I am. Like maybe, and, and even in this conversation where you're surprised about my view and 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 where I am, maybe there's like this feministic side to me um, that really attracts women. But as you were saying at the beginning, in the, in, in the beginning of this conversation, where you started to talk about statistics and you said, hey, look, you know, because 20% of women are making it to partner level and women are so burnt out that there's so many more women starting law firms, that maybe the reason I have so many women in the room is because simply statistically, there's more women who are small law firm owners than men. Um, and therefore, there's that's just what the audience mix is going to be when I have a group of, of lawyers in a room um, that are working with me. Uh, so it's very interesting because I never thought of it from that perspective. I just assumed that, hey, this is the who's resonating with me and who I'm attracting. Um, but it might actually be indicative of this fallout of the, of the true problem uh, that's out there. And I, I actually don't think that big business, that big law is the right fit for a lot of these people. I think that they might have got there for this reason, but they actually are better off running their own firm and creating their own journey because um, it's, you know, being a, a cog in a wheel of a much bigger entity is not, is, not, is not really what a lot of people want. It's just that's the path that the industry has created. If you want success, this is the path you have to take. And now there's this alternate path that's being created. And some of it might be because of necessity, because they're not getting promoted. But I think a lot of it has to do with opportunity. It didn't exist before. A brand new attorney can um, go out, start a law firm and invest in technology and invest in people fairly easily, like virtual assistants, things like that, and get a, a law firm going with decent support and decent systems and processes and be able to be on even playing field with the big guys. What I would like to sp spend some time on now is talking about uh, what Jamie does, which is her legal back office business. Um, and what her, in her experience, where the problems lay when you're running a law firm, uh, what are the things that law firm owners do wrong along the way that maybe 
you can, by knowing better, can fix before they even become an issue. So Jamie, I'm going to jump straight into uh, staffing. Staffing is, it's a hot button. It's a hot button for me. It's a hot button for you probably. And what I find is that um, as a law firm owner grows their firm, they don't recognize how powerful and important it is for them to step out of the role of doing any of the work. And then they get into this place where they realize how powerful it is. And then they throw people at problems um, to solve them. That's been my experience. I want to know from you, where do you think that people might be taking missteps in staffing and growing their staff and and growing their firm and perhaps a better way that they can look at it when they think that, that, that hiring another person is going to solve the problem? Yeah, so I think a lot of times people add humans to problems that wouldn't be solved by a human. Um, And I say, I only want to pay humans to do what only humans can do. So if technology can do something, we should be relying on technology to do it. Um, I also think I see a resistance to change in general. And so, you know, if you've been using a software program for a really long time, I get it. Like your whole business is like wrapped up in this one tool. But if that tool sucks, it still sucks regardless of the people that are using it, right? And that that sort of aversion to change now creates workarounds on every single thing. And now you have to keep hiring humans because now you've got all these workarounds. So I do think um, technology problems should be solved by technology, not humans. And that's where people get into a situation where they're overstaffed. And then I also think that that aversion to change, right, really gets in the way of them making critical business decisions that really can impact the firm. And and the impact grows exponentially over time. You know, it feels little in the beginning, but now you get five years down the road and now you've got a really big problem that actually started five years ago. So in your experience, when you step foot into a law firm, you're typically at the end of that five-year experience where they've got a problem that was a small problem and has now become a big problem. Um, one of the things that you highlight is not using technology for what technology is there for. And it's really important for people to understand that technology does change over time. Um, but at the same time, it becomes a very difficult road to navigate to figure out which is the right tool to move to if your tool is not doing the thing that you need it to do. Um, What do you think that law firm owners should be doing in this process that they're not doing today? I think they're hanging on to older technologies just because they've always been around. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think they're not maximizing the use of the technologies that they have and the real functionality. So now, for example, let's say you've got a billing software, case management software, and you're only using it for billing. Well, these tools are very powerful today, like project management. Like many of the billing and case management platforms out there, you can create templates of tasks. And yes, every case has nuances and uniqueness, but just think like every family law case or every PI volume-based firm has certain steps that you do that are the same in every case. You have to do discovery. You have to collect financials. You have to collect medical records, fill in the blank. You can launch a template of tasks in which everyone logs in and knows what they're supposed to do every day and that week. And that efficiency alone is going to improve your staff's speed at moving the cases along, your lawyer's speed at moving the cases along. 
that's just one example. But I see a lot of firms, they have good tools in place, but they're not fully utilizing them. Same thing with integrations. They're not fully utilizing integrations. So they might choose a software program that is like, I don't know, more of a better user experience for them, but it doesn't integrate with all their existing tools. If you're already using QuickBooks Online, maybe you shouldn't switch to my case because my case doesn't sync with QuickBooks Online, right? So don't disrupt one part of your business and choose my case because you just like what my case looks like better than others. So I think integrations is another thing I would offer and really maximizing the use of the technology that they have. Yeah, and you bring up really good points with, with these and that um, there is so much power that software has. And I think the one thing that you didn't spell out that is the most powerful of it all besides for efficiency is it reduces human error. There's so much that we do as people and make mistakes when we do them. And technology is just going to do what you tell it to do. And if you give it a process to follow, it's going to follow that process and it's going to do it every time. So it creates this consistency experience for your clients. It not only creates a, 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 um, a process that your people are now going to be more efficient, but it also increases the customer experience and allows you to be more likely to have a very happy customer at the end and make them think that you're doing a lot more on their case because there's a lot more communication happening. Because when you build these processes in, you're gonna have emails going to them, updating them and things like that that are happening automatically where somebody would have just skipped that because they were too busy. Um, so it, it reduces a lot of that that human error or, or human laziness that might happen throughout uh, a case's uh, from beginning to end, a case's lifetime. Um, but I think there's a bigger question at hand and that is who should the law firm owner be leaning on to do this? Because one of the reasons that law firm owners suck at implementing technology and properly is because they're not technologists, right? They're, yeah. They don't understand it. They don't, they would have to learn it. They would have to master it in order to implement it. So, and the answer is not hire a technology person in your firm. Most firms don't have, in their growth stages don't have enough business to pay a full-time person to be stepping in and mastering these technology pieces. So the question becomes, what should a law firm owner do in this process? And I think that um, the mistake at, along the way that a lot of law firm owners are making is trying to figure out how to do things themselves and they leave themselves short, short, shortchanged in the process. Um, really, you should be hiring somebody to do it, but the, the, that's where the big challenge comes in is, are, is there somebody to hire and how do you find them? Yeah, um, good segue into legal back office. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, you're right, you know, they, they're even the ones that are thinking forward thinking and are like, okay, I know I need technology, I'm just going to pull the trigger, but then it never gets implemented or it's sitting on the plate of the office manager or legal assistant and you're always going to prioritize your clients every single time. And I actually like to call there are there's a segment of lawyers called DIYers. And and these lawyers, they like to do it themselves. Like they like to dive in and figure out how to set up a Google ad for a campaign. I would argue that's not the best use of your time, but they'd like to learn it and figure it out and do it. And that's that's great. If it brings you joy, right? Return on investment is twofold. It's dollars and joy. And so if your time is bringing dollars, great. If it's bringing you joy and not dollars, that's okay too. But doing things that aren't bringing you dollars or joy is probably not the best use of your time. So one of the things that we do on the consulting side of our business is we can come in and help you figure out, I'm telling you, your billing process 
it's likely broken regardless of the technology. It's usually not a tech problem. It's usually a procedure that's been in place forever and has never been updated or looked at or an, an aversion to change. That's the real issue. The billing process has to be fixed as a process before you can even use self software to facilitate that process, right? If you're still print, physically printing pre-bills, don't just like that's that's a big <laughs> like that's the problem not the technology right so we can come in and say let's document what your current procedure is then let's help you tell you here's how we think you should fix it oh and then by the way we can dive into the tech for you and actually fix it within the tech and then we can train your staff on how to actually now go about this new procedure. So we do that on a project basis. And, and actually that's the work that we kind of love doing the most because it, it does truly have a pretty fast, big impact on the firm and the amount of time that it saves them and the results that they're able to get. Yeah, and I, so I love that this is something that you do. I'm sure it's definitely a place to, to, to put a plug in for you. Um, but there's also gonna be people who perhaps don't need that level of, you know, of interaction, right? They don't need a, a whole major up, you know, um, uh, re revamp of everything, but they simply need to say, hey, I need somebody to come in and just make my Clio do what it's supposed to do, right? Come yeah. in and just create some automations for me. Here's what we're doing. Here's how we're using it. Just come in and automate some stuff. Just come in and, and, and make those project task lists, task lists. Um, you know, so I think that we, we need to, we need to find those solutions and highlight them here on the show and other places. So people have a place to go. Um, you're speaking my language when it comes to the billing cycle and how invoicing happens. Um, I mean, I, I can't stand, basically, this is how we got here. We got here because a firm owner, we use big law, some larger law firm to start their own firm. And this is what you saw them doing. So you just. Yep. Do the same thing. And the reality is, is that, um, and this is the Clio Legal Trends Report highlighted this in uh, 2020, where so much money is being left on the table, right? You think that you charge $350 an hour for your work. You think that you're billing $350 an hour. You're not. Because what happens is, is that when you go to do the billing cycle, the first thing you're doing is you're looking and saying, oh, is this reasonable? Is it reasonable I spent this much time doing something? And you're doing this reasonability test and you're marking down your hours before you even get to an invoice. Then you send the invoice to the client, the client calls screaming, says, I didn't know it was gonna be this much. You gotta help me, Can't I can't pay this much. And you say, okay, I'm gonna discount, discount. By the time you turn around with your cross outs and you're discounting, and now you will look back at how much time you spent and how much you actually collected, all of a sudden you're getting $200 an hour instead of 350. So the reality is, is that the best solution to billing is to just not be involved. You enter your time, and then somebody else does the billing. Never look at it again, because if you yep. spent the time, you should be billing the time. If there's, if it shouldn't have taken you that long, you should probably fix that at a different level than fixing it on the bill, right? Yeah. You should get better at your job, and and you know. But the reality is that someone else is charging five hundred an hour because they're better at it than you. So you're charging three fifty. Own it, because that's the level you're at, and that's how long it takes you. And if somebody has a problem with it, great. Let them call and let them talk to one of your staff members and gripe with them. But the reality is, is that the other thing with, with billing that really, really gets me is this, oh, I bill once a month. 
90% of the people out there have a cash flow issue. You know why you have a cash flow issue? Because you're, you're doing work for 30 days, not getting paid for it. What if you build once a week instead of once a month? Well, oh, that would take too long. Not if you have a process that just spits them out, emails them, right? So the right. fact that you're billing once a month creates this phenomenon where a client is surprised at the end of the month at how much was racked up. But if you invoice them once a week, how much could you have done in a week? It's a lot less. Oh. And therefore, the sticker shock is gone. So they're not going to call you screaming about a bill because it's one week's worth. So it's, there's a human psychology point to it, but it also helps your cash flow because if you have the money in trust, you can take it out of trust. You, so you get paid immediately. If the money is not in trust, you can invoice the client and start that process of however long it takes for you to get the money from them. Because now instead of waiting 30 days, you waited seven days and now it's that much faster that you get paid. And most law firms really suck at retainer replenishment. So instead of having a monstrous problem at the end of 30 days, because you didn't do a retainer replenishment, they used up the retainer and now you're chasing them for money. Now you did your invoicing cycle once a week. You right away, you know, the retainer has been, has been diminished enough that you need a retainer replenishment and boom, you do it. So um, I'm with you. I think the invoicing cycle is awful. I think that that's a great place to, to effectuate change. Um, but more importantly, it's it's looking at what other broken systems have we brought in uh, to our practice and are just doing because that's the way it was done by somebody else that we saw doing it. Um, absolutely. And I think this has actually guided us into what I would say is, you know, and maybe it's our final topic, but one really important point that I think gets lawyers off track and that is they don't know their numbers, period. You know, you're talking about things as if these lawyers are actually even tracking their trust balances or tracking their AR. I love tracking two, two numbers that no lawyer ever tracks, days to AP and days to AR, meaning how many days does it take me to pay my bills? How many days does it take my clients to pay me? And oftentimes, if they have a cash flow issue, there's dissonance there. The lawyer's paying their bills faster than their clients are paying them. Almost, almost every single time if there's a cash flow issue. And that, those aren't numbers that most lawyers are running, right? If you can tell, look at your financial statements, look at your Clio reports or your My Case reports or whatever, and try to tell yourself a story. You know, we, these lawyers aren't looking at their numbers at all. And the, your numbers are telling you a story about the health of your business. And I think that higher level is the most important is that they're not looking at their numbers at all. So there's broken processes and broken systems and the numbers can help you see where those issues are, right? And then you can dive into those issues. So I think that's another thing I would offer is what lawyers are not doing is they're not looking at their key performance indicators or looking at their performance dashboards. They might be looking at hours. They might be looking at AR, but they're not looking at anything else. And sometimes those are actually better indicators of what might be going on in our business. Let's be honest. They're looking at one thing and one thing only, and that's the bank account balance. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they wake up in the morning and check the bank account balance. And we, Mike McCallowitz dubs this bank balance accounting, right? Um, you wake up in the morning, you check your bank account. And if it's low, you, you make your staff crazy to go collect some money. And if it's high, you go see where can I, what can I spend money on? 
And the problem is, is that both of those are not healthy ways to run your business. And the bank account right. balance is fictitious, right? It's, it's true. That's how much cash is in the bank. But it tells you nothing about how much you're owed, tells you nothing about what expenses are coming up. And therefore, it is absolutely meaningless um, to know how much is there in this given moment, other than knowing that tomorrow I have to run payroll and there's not enough money in there to run payroll, which is really what happens uh, in the reality. And you know, there's multiple multi-million dollar revenue firms that I have personally interacted with where they were literally moving funds in to make payroll. And it's yeah. just, it's just an awful place to be. And there's no reason for it. It's, you know, there's, there's a, a, there's a lot broken about running a law firm as a business. And it's a lot of it is, is simply just getting yourself educated to understand that there's more at play here and you need to pay attention. So when it comes to KPIs, you, you just talked about your two favorite numbers that people aren't talking about. And I love that, you know, check for discrepancies between how long it takes to, to collect versus how long it takes you to pay. Um, what is your favorite way for somebody to track metrics? Because it's not like you could just go to QuickBooks and look at a dashboard. There's no dashboard in QuickBooks. The numbers are there, but there's no dashboard. You can't go to your practice management software and run a dashboard. They don't have that either. So what's the solution for somebody who says, hey, I, I understand I need to focus on numbers, but I don't know how to do that. There's not a really great tool out there right now. Actually, the very beginning of the pandemic, we started building uh, Law Perform. You can go check it out. The website's still out there, lawperform.com. Um, and it is an API-based system that's APIing into your core systems and pulling it together. And we're going to pick it back up soon. I promise. We're going to pick it back up. But we all got a little derailed by, by the pandemic. Um, but there are some companies out there that integrate with Clio, for example, like FirmTrack, right, that are trying to do a better job at reporting. QBO's gotten a lot better, too. But unfortunately, right now, it is just a little bit clunky, right? There's not right now a really good tool that's pulling in accounting data, that's pulling in operational data, and that's pulling in marketing data, right? There just isn't. There are tools that are pulling in two of the three, but not all three. Um, I do think, I actually wrote a blog on this. I think I linked to what are some of my top metrics to be tracking. I'll tell you the two that drive me crazy that people don't track is fixed fee profitability. People that are in contingency-based businesses and in fixed-fee-based fixed law firms aren't tracking their time, and I think that's a travesty because you don't truly know if you're profitable or how much capacity you are putting into these cases. Just because you have poor billing hours doesn't mean as a business owner you shouldn't still be tracking that time. Also, admin time. I'm a big fan of tracking non-billable time. So even if it's internal time that's being spent by staff, or if it's time on cases, but we're not, we're not truly billing it, being able to look at the profitability of your fixed fees is incredibly powerful to determine whether you're, you're priced appropriately. And when you've been doing it a long time, I think there's a confidence that comes along. Well, I know how much an estate plan costs, you know, um, but do you? Because pricing shouldn't always just be about cost. It should be about value. And if we're offering a value to clients, we have to understand what it takes for us to deliver upon that value. So I could talk all day about metrics. And unfortunately, there's not a really great tool that pulls everything in. Um, so there is a little bit of manual stuff, right? It just is what it is. But I will say the integrations with QBO are getting a lot better. QBO's reporting and dashboards are getting a lot better 
Um, and then some of these, you know, if you're using my case, the financial insights tool is really cool. If you're not using it, a lot of times people aren't even digging into what their systems do. So in, in these software programs, like my case, Clio, Practice Panther, they want you to maximize your use of this system, right? They want you to use it for this power. You can set up a call with any of these help people and just ask them to tell you what are the things that you love the most about this program and what it does. And you're probably always going to walk away with something you didn't know that it did. So I always like to recommend that too. You don't know what it can do until you can get on the phone with someone and really explore. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And I, and, and also, the, you know, people just don't, they don't lean on the support of the software vendor uh, and they're sitting there, you know, trying to figure something out for two hours when you can literally just open a ticket and get somebody to walk you through it. So don't forget that you have that as a resource. It doesn't cost you anything in most cases to just reach out to them and say, Hey, I'm trying to do X, Y, Z. Can you show me where, how to do that? Um, and yep. you know, you may, you might feel silly. Like, why should I bother somebody when it's out there somewhere in their knowledge base? Well, that's exactly it. You know, whose time is more valuable, yours or theirs, right? You're the client, right? You yep. not lean on them. Um, so yeah, I love that. And I, and I love that you, you talk about tracking time, even if you're in flat fee, fixed fee, uh, or even like contingency based, right? PI, um, you know, it's not, it's not only to see if you're profitable or not, or see what your costs are, but how would you know if there's inefficiencies if you don't see something taking a certain amount of time, right? Yep. And there's so much that could be done with automation, with using software technology instead of people for a lot of things. And if you don't identify that this is a place where we're using a, a lot of human resources, there's no way that you would know to look for a solution that can be an alternate for that. Um, so that's that's another a really good benefit of tracking time. I do that even with my law firm owners to see where their breakdown in productivity is because they're one of the things that they're coming to me with is I don't have any time. Like I don't, it's great that you tell me oh go do this that and the other, but I don't have time to do it. And my initial response is well if you don't have time then there's something broken. Right. So what, why don't you have time? So I, I have them use a tool called Timular. I don't know if you've heard of it. So Timular is a device, it's eight sided. And basically every time you're doing something, you each side has a label and you just turn to that side. So this way you easily track and then you run a report and it tells you exactly how much time you spent doing each thing. So you can know how much time you spent checking email, how much time you spent going to the bathroom, how much, you know, like you just have those things identified and you just keep switching the device, do that for a week and look at your report. And you'll be shocked to find out that you spent 25% of your time checking email. But that's what people are doing. And it's just, that's you know, we can go into a whole nother conversation about productivity. Oh, absolutely. I, and I could talk all day long about business dash, dashboards. I, I do think that, you know, we've talked a lot about efficiencies and operational changes that need to be made. I will say, like, just taking it up really high level, fundamentally, if you don't know where you're going, and what you want to achieve, you'll never be able to figure out how you're going to get there. And the lack of strategic planning in this industry astounds me. People look at a strategic plan as being like fluffy, but it's like but you don't even know where you want to go. Like you can wake up one day and end up somewhere you never wanted to be. Either your firm's just much bigger than you wanted it to be and you're never, you're not sleeping, you're not eating because you're just working all the freaking time, or you've got cash flow issues because you can't support the things that you've been trying to create. And so I always love to tell people to, yes, figure these things out, but start here and really being honest with what you want out of this. What do your business partners want out of this? Then go down to the, how are we going to get there? Because then you can start to really affect change. And when you look 
three years from now or five years from now and you're actually hitting the place you wanted to be, that's a really, really good feeling. And I love that. I, I spent a lot of time talking about how important it is to have a plan, have a goal, know where you're headed. Um, you know, you wouldn't get into a car to drive somewhere if you didn't know how to go there without punching it into the GPS. You wouldn't just start driving and hope that you get there. So you wouldn't do, shouldn't do the same thing in your business. So I, I absolutely love that as your final, uh, you know, part, uh, imparting wisdom because we're going to close it down here. Normally, I would ask you what's like your number one thing you want to share, but we'll just take that as your number one thing. Um, I do want to give you an opportunity to let our audience know if you want to get involved with legal back office and, and maybe have a further conversation with Jamie, what is the, the next step somebody could take to get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. If you go to our website, legalbackoffice.com, you can fill out a form there or even find me on LinkedIn and my cell phone's on there. If you want to text me, email me, I'm really open. Um, I just love talking to lawyers. I talk to lawyers all the time that never become clients because I'm like, just reach out to me because I could give you some advice, right? I'm not going to charge you for it. I want to add value. If I can add value in your firm, I know it will come back to us in the long run and I can save you a ton of time. And sometimes people are like, just tell me what software program you think I should use. You know, all of them, right? Like I'm down to these three, which one should I use? And sometimes even just having somebody else make the decision for you is good. So, you know, check out our website, connect with me personally, always happy to have a conversation, love talking to lawyers. You should also read my blog, Why I Love Lawyers, and you should too, because it's a really cool read. <laughs> awesome. Love it. Jamie, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great conversation. We were all over the place. It sounds like this is going to be some, you're going to be somebody who comes back again, because there's a lot more that we could dive into that we just didn't get a chance to cover today. Folks, if you enjoyed this interview, you learned something here, you're going to learn something on the next one. Go back in the archive, listen to our past ones, but make sure you hit that subscribe button in your podcast player, because this way, you know, when we release a new episode, we do that twice a week, every Tuesday and Thursday. And this is our, our amazing Thursday episodes are always a guest who is bringing their A game for you. Jamie just did that. We have a ton more coming your way. So make sure that you subscribe to this podcast. And the last thing is we, we live on ratings and reviews. People check us out all the time. They look at how many ratings and reviews we have. They look at how many stars we have. They want to know if it's worth their time and effort to put us in their ears. And you can help us. If you enjoy the show and you want us to keep going, you can help us by going and taking the time to write a rating and review in your podcast player. Uh, we would love that if you did it. Uh, that's basically it. We'll see you next Tuesday. Take care. It's a wrap. Thanks. Have you been enjoying the show? We sure hope so. To make sure you never miss an episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button in your podcast player app. Next week, we will be back with more valuable resources and ideas on how to break the mold and take your law firm to the next level.